And so he tells this story about, um, it's a joke, but it's masquerading as a story about the Edinburgh Zoo where the gorilla dies like a couple days before opening day for the summer season. And the gorilla was like this main attraction. And so what they do is they hire a guy until they can get a new gorilla to wear a gorilla suit and act like a gorilla in the cage, you know? And so this guy, you know, takes the job and doing all the monkey motions, swinging on the trees and he's getting bored over the, you know, two weeks that he's doing this job. And so he's like learning how to do these swings like around the trees. And eventually he gets so into it that he accidentally flies off the tree and lands in the lion cage. And the lion is like right up against his face and he doesn't know what to do because he's got a, people think that he's a gorilla and not a human being. So they're not coming to his aid. And so he starts shouting, help me, help me. I'm not a gorilla. I'm a human being. I'm a human being. And then this lion is like right in front of his face and he can feel his breath. And he just hears this voice out of nowhere go, shut up, you idiot. We'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> and I could just hear, I could totally hear a priest telling that joke at the beginning being like, the moral of this story is that are we really in really authentic Christians or are we just wearing a costume? <laughs> but anyways, that was a huge digression. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Well, hey, firstly, we tried to give a shout out to Ali Chambro last week and it didn't That's who it work was. out because I didn't know her name. <laughs> but uh, shout out to Ali, uh, friend of the uncle of Garrett was the was the connection. So isn't hasn't she sent us an email or two before, Father? Mm-hmm. And she's a Twitter follower as well. Wow. Ooh, that's a real fan. That's a serious mm-hmm. fan, dude. She's a career fan. Also, I feel like... Um, I, I think I promised Lori Kruger a, a shout out a while ago, but she could really use one. Yeah, so, Lori Kruger. Prayers she for is her. Hard. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She is hardcore. Go, Lori. Yeah, yeah. And another thing. Well, I was uh, so I, I'm continuing to listen to the book Paralandra by C.S. Lewis, and as we've discussed before, it's the um, this meditation on original justice by this guy going to Venus, where Adam and Eve are have just been created and the whole creation hasn't known sin yet. And um, the character who kind of stands in for the serpent is arguing with Eve and trying to get her to disobey God's command. And the, the command is that they basically, they live on these floating islands in the middle of the ocean. And what my impression is that it, what it represents is that... Um, that there's no control like you can't there's no fixed like house that you can build and put your stuff in and life just has to come to you um as a succession of goods that are presented and that you enjoy rather than like your own kind of manipulation of your space or your time or your future or whatever and so it's it's kind of that's the original justice is that adam and eve just accept everything as directly from the hand of god and what he's outlawed, the the one prohibition that he's given them is that uh, they not 
because there are fixed islands also that don't move, that aren't floating. And uh, he's told them that they can't stay overnight on one of these. It's not that they can't go there, that, but they can't stay overnight. And um, so the devil character is trying to get her to do it. And he's like given all these arguments about how, um, you know, God wants you to be so free that you even disobey him. Like he wants you to experience the thrill of turning away from him and running from him. Uh, kind of like when you chase a dog and you're playing with a dog, you don't want him to come right to you. You want him to run away to have it be fun. And all these kind of weird arguments to get her. And she's she doesn't know that he's the devil. She's just trying to make sense of everything in her head. And his kind of nail in the coffin argument is that, you know, all of the other goods, you, you can tell that God wants you to disobey this command because all of the other commandments he's given you are obviously good or make sense. You can see why he's commanded that you do this or that because it's good for you and it makes you happy. But this one command is strange in that it's not obviously sensical. And so this must mean that it's a special command that he wants you to break for the sake of growing up, you know, and being free and mature. And she's kind of like struggling to um, argue against this. And then the character who is sort of the, the advocate for God, the main character of the book, Ransom, says, I have another reason why you don't understand this commandment. And he said, because it it's the only opportunity you have to obey for the sake of obeying. In other words, you don't, you're not just obeying the law, the natural law, because it makes sense to you and because you want to, but because um, you trust the command giver. You trust God enough to do something that he commands simply because he commands it. And um, I, I don't know, that's really struck me. And I thought, to me, it's like the basis of all conversion, relationship with God, faith in general. Like you just have at some point, the, the basis of all obedience to God is first and foremost a trust in God that he is on your side, you know. Um, there's a ton, ton packed up in there I've been thinking about, but I went to a, a lecture downtown yesterday. I, I took the train into the, the city, which was kind of cool. I've never done that uh, since I moved here to the south side, but the train station's super close and I just rolled up into the loop and went to the university club. Mundelein was given a, a lecture. Dr. Hooter. Hooter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was very good. He was talking about conscience. but And I brought this up and because he was talking about how your conscience is, your conscience has rights because it has duties. Like this is the way that God speaks to us. And it's never as a foreign law imposed on us because it's for our own human flourishing. God gives us these commandments to live the certain way, to avoid evil, to do good. And our conscience is the, is the light that guides us in that. But um, I don't know. I just thought that this insight from Lewis is like, sometimes you just don't understand. Um, I mean, even to my vocation to the priesthood, like you don't, it didn't make sense to me at first. And the, the things God was asking me to do don't make sense. And they still don't fully make sense. But you do it because you love the person, not just because it, it's like some kind of calculus for having the best life. You know what I mean? Well, here's a question for you because we actually kind of talked about this the other night, <clears throat> just the, the idea of faith. And yeah. Trying to, that's exactly where I was thinking as well. Yeah. yeah. Just, Do trying tell. To, 
just trying to understand the gift that is faith and really like the the wall that I want to be rubbing your microphone in your armpit right now maybe <laughs> no that makes no sense <laughs> no actually just... neither of us were rubbing their microphone it sounded like a okay. <laughs> mike actually is doing it now what's it sound like that's <laughs> similar anyway go ahead is it better now do we need to yeah, adjust the lives no it's good i wonder what that was all i could hear was some priest interrupting my amazing knowledge bomb i was about to drop but yeah i digress um, so the wall that I kept running into when we were talking about faith and even in prayer and, you know, having, having a couple of friends who are on the other side of the trust in God, um, is how do you, how do you explain or how do you understand this gift that is faith, um, if you don't have it? Because it's, it's something that allows you to see the world in a completely different way. It's something that allows you to trust and be obedient for the sake of this relationship that you're in. But how do you tell someone to stake their life, stake every action on a relationship that we know they have, that we know is reality, but the personal experience, the subjective reality, is no relationship at all. It is solitude, or better yet, isolation. How can you tell someone who is in isolation, no, you're not. No, you're not. Uh, there's actually someone here with you, and you just have to trust in him. And, of course, that's not how you, would, you wouldn't dictate a feeling to them. Um, but it, that was just the biggest barricade that I felt um, is how do you explain that to somebody or at least encourage it um, for someone who is kind of on the, on the dark side of the moon. You know, they haven't yet seen the light. Um, they haven't had that moment of conversion, um, where then everything is seen with that depth of God's goodness, God's gift, um, which doesn't make everything easier and it doesn't make everything awesome, but it does allow you to see God in everything. Um, so that was just kind of like, that was where I felt the discussion leading into when we spoke last night. And I mean, it's kind of exactly what you're talking about there is trusting for the sake of trusting, trusting because being obedient because you trust in this God, being obedient because you trust in this person who has given you everything and you stake your life on, I believe that you're going to keep giving me everything and that you're going to support me. Yeah, the story that, and we talked about this last night or the other night as well, that resonated with me that's been coming up a lot for me recently that I think, and Bisque, you can answer this if you think this articulates what kind of where this has moved, but is from Therese's life, you know, they talk about the dark night of her faith at the end of her life, that even up to the point of her death, the notion of heaven was just under attack to where she had like no quote unquote belief in this. It was just darkness, like what she felt was coming and all these temptations were around her that there's nothing after death and um but they say and the scene that's really been sticking out to me recently i don't think it's in story of a soul i don't know where i read it actually um so but i i think it's true is that sometime in her life she actually wrote out the apostles creed in her own blood um, 
And then she would wear that close to her heart. And there's just this notion of like, no matter how dark it got, she just held like fiercely, you know, is, is the word to like, God is a God who loves me and he's, he's a good father and he won't give me anything that he is not in control of. And so even up to her death, and that's where you get into her writings of like, I've, I've sat at the table with atheists and I think you have to take her at her word when she says that if she's like, she knows how they, how they feel. But somehow in this experience, her faith, you know, has been able to say even to them that God is there, even though she's had the same experience. So it's it's hard to articulate, but it was helping me. I was thinking about it in terms even of I've been reading a biography recently of her and the author talks about how even in these horrific wars like World War One and World War Two. Story of a Soul was extremely popular amongst soldiers, like in the trenches. Um, and so, you know, just that thought that like this cloistered French nun who writes kind of in this flighty, you know, um, lyrical style would be with these soldiers, um, you know, in kind of the the trenches of the human experience like the absolute depths of what humanity has seen and like how that could be inspiring to them and i think it has a lot to do with that notion of faith in the face of darkness but what mike was getting at was like how do you articulate that to someone in the experience i don't know i just hold that up as like an example of i think that's why she's such a powerful witness to our generation um but I, well, don't, you don't, I don't. It's not an answer. You can't bring somebody into the light. It's it's a right the initiative yeah. of God to do that. <clears throat> but I mean, what you're talking about is someone who has already formed a relationship with God, and now their felt experience is that He's far from them, but they know in their intellect that He's not. And this kind of leads to this might be a kind of a fine philosophical distinction. But what I was thinking of with the Lewis point about obeying for obedience sake, um, particularly because you don't understand the command. You don't understand why God is doing this or insists that you do this is, you know, you can, you could end up with a voluntarist God with that, with that way of thinking. You could say, well, God can command whatever he wants. And I mean, look at Paris last week, you know, God can command, uh, you know, things that my conscience like is revolted by like murder or suicide or whatever else but because it's god's command it's more faithful to do it even though in my heart it feels evil or whatever i mean might be people their conscience is so um suppressed that it doesn't seem evil to them or it might even seem good but in any case it's a god who can command whatever he wants regardless of whether or not it matches up with you know deep categories of good and evil in our own hearts and minds. Whereas what we believe is that your conscience is directed by the light of reason, um, endowed by God for our own fulfillment, that the end of human action is goodness. That's why God created us to be good. And he calls us good. Um, so nothing that we do or God could command or even let us suffer could ever really be for our, you know, 
bad. It always has to be for our good, um, regardless of whether or not we can see it. So I guess the point is more like, I, I like the darkness analogy with Therese because you're saying if the lights were on, if I could see what the purpose of all of this was, my suffering, this trench that I'm sitting in in World War One or whatever else, that if I could see by God's light the purpose of all of this, it would be easy because I could see that it was a it was an obvious good. But what God's trying to call me into is a deeper relationship with Him, which is the which is the ultimate good. That's the that's the real purpose of human life, not just to do good or even to just be happy, but uh, to be in communion with God, which is our ultimate permanent happiness. But um, if we just were to like use the Ten Commandments uh, or the revelation of God as sort of the uh, blueprint for a prosperous or happy life, I mean, you could do that to some extent, and people do. Your Joel Olsteins and your prosperity gospel people will say, following God will make you happy. It'll give you a better life because you're not going against the nature of your heart and the nature of reality and everything around you. But ultimately, that's not what God wants, which is why we ha- we hold up the cross, is that like this person who did everything, who lived a perfect life, suffered extreme darkness uh, for the sake of intimacy with his father that led him to say, if you can, if I, this pass, or if this cup can pass from me, let it pass, but not my will, but yours be done. And th- that's, I think, what Therese probably was getting at, um, that why she would hang a bloody note around her neck is because she wants to hang on to God's will even when to her it seems like the most difficult or even the most nonsensical thing. She could sit at table at the table with atheists, but she doesn't choose what they choose, which is to not believe. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. And Father, I think, I mean, Mother Teresa is obviously the <laughs> kind of contemporary example that we have of that. But your last line <clears throat> is a great segue into what I was I was thinking. But it seems like, in the face of the darkness, especially intellectually and experientially, there's total darkness that's there. And yet underlying all of that is the reality of the relationship. And so it seems like faith in a lot of ways is, I love the language in the theology of the body text when he's talking about chastity is reason being grafted onto your appetite, your sexual appetite. And I guess in that same type of language, I would say that faith is like grace or relationship grafted onto the will. And so even when intellectually it seems like you're choosing something that's totally different, there has been grace that's grafted on in relationship and love and yeah, divine gift of self has been grafted onto your will where you choose to believe, you choose to be obedient even when maybe your rational faculties are telling you otherwise. Um, because a lot of times it does seem it it does seem like it's just a gritty act of the will. Like Therese, she's bleeding. Mm-hmm. She has she has I don't know, somehow found a way to find blood. Maybe she's cut herself. Okay, so this is where she is. And she's writing the creed in her blood. This is a gritty, <clears throat> willful act that stands in contradiction to a lot of things. I would I would not say to someone Cut yourself. Right, right, right. Right in blood. But there's this gift that's inflamed her will that is, it's only from the divine 
that she has even had the ability to choose this in any way. And I don't know. I mean, because we do talk about like, don't just grit and bear it and don't just like white knuckle and will through it. Um, but it seems like there is an aspect of faith where it's, it, but I think the distinction is it's not from the individual. It is um, a grafting of divine love onto the will of the person so that the will is being lifted up by the love of the divine, even when they're not aware of it, even when um, they think everything else is darkness. There's that um, great story of Catherine of Siena where she's uh, tormented by the devil all night and you know she would have visions and she was trying to sleep but she couldn't because the devil was conjuring all these images of obscene acts and um it kept her up all night long and she was just kind of revolted by the whole thing and um she would see jesus would appear to her and she um was talking to jesus in the morning and she said to him why did you allow this to happen where were you you know why was i alone to fight the devil in these horrible things he was showing me and he's like i was here the whole time why do you think you were appalled by that stuff instead of attracted to it uh, the way he wanted you to be and so the the mystery was that he was not visible in the same way that he normally was to her but um had become one with her in a deeper way that was harder for her to see but much more real it wasn't like he was an outside and this is kind of the point of the whole conscience thing. Like it's not a foreign law imposed on us, right. but it wells up from our nature as made in the image of God. And and Lewis's point in this book too, because the guy's like, where is God? Where? Why am I left here alone to fight the devil and to try to keep Eve from sinning? And what he realizes in his own meditation is that, okay, this isn't just a reboot of the book of Genesis because Jesus has already come. Um. And therefore, the divine and the human are no longer separate. And uh, so I, it's not an arrogant thing to say, I am God's representative, that God is here because I'm here. Um, and that was the kind of the point of the incarnation was to sort of set things back aright where God and human beings were not alienated from one another. And we wouldn't think to ourselves, where is God? Because... Um, there is no separation because God truly is everywhere and he's in us, not just around us like a cloud or like we're swimming in the ocean and there's God is like the water, but that he is in the dictates of our conscience. That's John Henry Newman, that the, the evidence for God is the fact that there is a law in, written on our hearts that obliges us and gives us duties that we must obey, but that we didn't invent. Um, and therefore, there is a higher law. So all, all that, I don't know, that, it seems to me like goes back to my original point, which is following God's law is not a self-improvement project. It is mm -hmm. the way of returning to what God originally intended, which was intimacy with us. Yeah. Well, intimacy, and it's what I was thinking even before you said that, which is a return to intimacy, is that it's grounded, like that foundation is relationship. It is relational. So we are relational beings in every aspect and i like that story from catherine when you were telling it i was thinking about uh saint josephine Bakita. oh yeah and um who's just she's a wonderful saint but she was the slave who was um like grossly abused in her early life and they said like i read a story on her once she has a bunch of carve marks like from her old 
you know, quote unquote masters that would just, um, they would like carve these images into her body and then like throw salt on them. And so she had all these scars and, um, later on she went to somehow ended up, I think in Rome, in Italy, um, I think for sure. I don't know where. Yeah, I think a family, an Italian family. Yeah, an Italian family, like, yeah, somehow got her out of this situation. So she converted. She became a nun. Um, and But anyway, at, at some point, like, later in her life, when she was known as this, like, saintly um, figure, the saintly nun, wherever she was, the somebody asked her, like, why would you... Why would you convert? Like, because they had that image of Christianity as being uh, a hindrance on your freedom, you know. And so, like, why would you? Why would you go from this life of slavery um, to the life of slavery that you've chosen now? It's kind of how they they pitched this question. And the story that I heard goes is that she looked at him. She said, "Because now my master has scars too." Why is there something rather than nothing? But the the thing that I I guess I kept going back to is again in JP 2s theology of the body he very specifically talks about when objectification occurs um, that what you're doing is instead of looking at the person as a whole instead of looking at the subject or the object of your viewing as a whole you look at individual aspects of the person and you fixate on them. And I think that's a really uh, good way of looking at even um, just like our day-to-day situation. And so I know we talked about we talk about wisdom as being this divine perspective that elevates us and allows you to see the mosaic, not in a single tile, but to see the entire mosaic. And it's super easy for us to fixate on these individual scenarios and kind of dive too deeply into them or take them... Uh, maybe even take them too seriously. To yeah, do you have an example to... of what you're talking about? I'm having trouble following. Um, an example? Well, you, you it mean just objectification me... of people, as in like lust or like yeah, 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 greed? yeah, yeah. Okay. exactly. Yeah. So it it disallows you from seeing loving the person as a person because you're looking at body parts rather than the right. Person. And so, yeah, instead of looking at the whole person, you're looking at individual aspects of. Of the person, which really keeps you from seeing the whole picture that's there, which is, I guess, getting back to trying to get back to your original point, Father, of like you can't see, even though you can't see the whole picture to it, there's an understanding that there is more. And I think, like in Paralandra, the fem- the lady, I don't even, yeah, the female, um, what she is doing is the devil is trying to have her focus on one individual aspect of it mm. say what's the, what's the big deal what's the big deal look mm. you 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 can't you can't see it here don't worry about it what's the big deal about staying one night over in this solid ground there's no reason for it but when you take a big picture back which i mean i'm not i don't want to ruin the story for you which eventually that's what she does there's a divine perspective that's there and it, it just reminds me of something that came up in prayer which i was actually telling rob about as I was going through John and got to the Lazarus story, the story of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead, and <clears throat> I certainly need to pray with it a lot more. But something that struck me was um, we always talk about like, you know, what the goodness of the Lord, how He comes and raises this man from the dead, and um, you know, people are so moved by Lazarus that the scribes and Pharisees actually want to kill him 
because he's such a like a blessed figure at that point. But when you read through the story, you see that a couple of things. You see that Christ, he knew that Lazarus was dying and decided to stay instead of go to Bethany uh, for two days. Okay, And then he eventually says, all right, I know that Lazarus is going to die, and so I'm going to go and raise him from the dead. So Lazarus, uh, he actually died, you know, however long he was sick for, uh, with the knowledge, because you see Mary and Martha, they come running out of the house when Jesus comes, and they're weeping, and they're totally 100% certain, and they say, Jesus, if you were here, you could have cured Lazarus. He wouldn't have died. Uh, you know, and, and they're, they're totally obedient and have this beautiful, even faith towards him. But they also know that he kind of abandoned them. Like, that's kind of what they're getting at. Well, where, where were you? Why didn't you come? And the thought occurred to me that Lazarus was sick and dying for, I mean, at least three days. The story, you know, it doesn't really go exactly into it. But he laid there sick and knew that his friend Jesus, whom he loved and whom Jesus loved him, so he, he was clear about that relationship, could have saved him and yet didn't, which means that he died with the sense of abandonment that Jesus Christ, my good, good friend and son of God, left me to die when he could have come and saved me. Hmm. And and so I still need to, of course, like pray about that a lot more, but there was a real desire to dive into that. How could Jesus do that to him? How could Jesus do that to him? And I guess like... What made me think of it was if you look at that story individually and you don't know about Lazarus being raised from the dead, which Jesus is very clear, that's the whole purpose of it, to give glory to my father and um, yeah, to give glory to God. To show how deep his love is by how much it can, like how much evil it can consume. Right. And transform. So I guess there's, there's two points there is one, I mean, Lazarus's pain there is very real. Like you were saying, Rob, that suffering, you, you don't trivialize your own suffering because you know that, like, we know the story of the resurrection is going to be there. Lazarus died alone, or he died at least with Martha and Mary, knowing that Jesus wasn't there for him. But when we look at the whole story, we see the goodness, the incredible goodness of the Lord raising a man from the dead, right? Um, and so I guess there's... I don't know. Maybe that's two different. The two different perspectives of it is you have. I mean, it's the same story, but you have two very different ways of looking at it. And one is the whole story, and one is just that individual aspect of it. One is the resurrection, and one is death. One is relationship and joy and communion, uh, and the other one is abandonment and isolation. Um, so I still need to pray about that more. But I don't know. Did anything? strike you there i i don't know if that helped make your point at all father yeah i think that it's just it kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week like how do you be brave what it what is lazarus thinking about um remember that commercial where the navy guys are calling on the radio to the german dude and they're like we're sinking we're sinking help us help us and he looks all confused and no. he gets on the radio and he goes, what are you thinking about? <laughs> um, but what was Lazarus thinking about? Um, 
In those in those moments. You leave that in your homily. <laughs> yeah. You do not bring that into the podcast. Relax. But it's because like even in my own prayer, like I want to know the answer to this, Father. Tell me. Tell me the answer because there is a sense in all of our own prayers that like, wait, hey, this abandonment, God, what the heck are you doing? You know? And so I, this is like a general, I'm talking about the spiritual life in general to remove myself from it. But really, like this is, the podcast is for us, dude. I really need to know your advice <laughs> here. What do you think about this? Um, formulate your question in like a sentence. No, no, no. Just um, you talk about what I just said about the Lazarus deal. What struck you with that? Just that, uh, like I said, back to what we were talking about last week is the question of like, how do you navigate when it's the darkest, you know, when it doesn't make sense, whether it's the command not to sleep on the fixed land or whether it's the, you know, God is all powerful, all good and cares about everything in my life and all my sufferings. Yet still I suffer. I'm sick and I'm not getting better. And it looks like this is going to kill me. And if God really loved me, why wouldn't he save me? And, you know, when things don't make any sense or you're scared or you're alone, how do you make an act of faith like the Therese thing? How do you make an act of faith in spite of the evidence, you know? And uh, this is maybe to your point about faith. Like, how do you get a person to see when they can't when they can't see, how do you get a person to believe something they can't see when they have no evidence of it? And for all intents and purposes, um, to them, there's no sign that there's a loving God. Uh, you just, I mean, Ignatius's rule, like in time of consolation, store up discomfort for the time that the, the desolation will come, you know, and in time of desolation, be assured that it's not permanent and that consolation will return. Um, sometimes that's to the point, I mean, it's never happened to me in my life, but I've certainly been there when it's happening to other people. There are times when it's like, you're all in or you're not in at all. Like this is, this is the thing. It's not a test. It's not like God's seeing how strong you are, but it's, uh, the way he becomes more intimate with us to the point of us realizing that, uh, God is never actually far away as much as it may feel that way what the Catherine story is all about and what the crucifixion, the agony in the garden is all about is that when God is appears to be furthest away, he's actually closest. And this is where something I heard at IPF uh, has been useful to me. It's like that most of our prayer, a lot of our intercessory prayer is for God to take away crosses, like take this suffering away from me, take, you know, heal me, make me better or whatever. And occasionally he'll grant that because it, maybe it's a cross too heavy for us to bear, but he doesn't want to grant it because the cross is exactly where we're most intimate with him. Like the Josephine Bakita thing, what struck her about the scars on Jesus's back was that it gave light and meaning to her dark history and saying that this has conformed me more to, to you. Uh, and if I hadn't suffered this, I wouldn't know you as well. Um, yeah, and Father, we gotta we gotta wrap up. But one of the things that I mentioned with Rob that when we were talking about it last time, two nights ago, was the desire to make an act of faith in that darkness is showing that the Lord has already been there and He has prepared your heart and planted a seed 
for you to love him. And what's being expressed behind your act of faith in this darkness is a relationship that God has initiated, that God has planted within your heart that he wants you to um, help him bring to fruition. And uh, I think looking at the presence of wanting, even wanting to be in relationship with him, when you have no other desire to, no other reasoning for it, shows that God is already there for you. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.